Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. On today's show, recorded on July 14, 2020, I had the pleasure to speak with Connor Doherty, the New York Times reporter, who recently published the book Golden Gates, about the housing crisis nationally, but focusing on the issue as it's amplified to a crisis level here in the Bay Area. For anyone wanting to dig deep into the housing crisis with quite accessible reads, I've been recommending two books lately, both Connard's book and The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. When I read Rothstein's book now a year or two ago, it was actually mind-bending since it identifies systemic racism and discrimination in housing policy, particularly in the building of the suburbs. And I mean the word systemic with both government and the private sector, meaning the real estate industry complicit in these behaviors. This is an important book and hopefully we'll get Richard on the podcast at some point. In contrast to The Color of Law, Connor's book is much less about discovering and proving a point. In his book, Connor tells a half dozen stories illustrating different situations, perspectives, and players that show the complexities and subtleties that make the solution, increasing housing supply, so difficult to achieve. Rothstein's book was an important point about past behavior. Connor's book is much more subtle, and as you'll hear in our interview, there's no clear conclusion to draw on how to solve our housing crisis, particularly our supply problem. For our interview, I was excited to get the perspective of an outsider to our industry, in this case a New York Times reporter, how he organizes his thinking about the situation, his observations and judgments about our industry from the outside looking in, and his leaving with some optimism, largely from the Yimbies, that attitudes towards development and supply are changing generationally in the direction of enabling development and density. Most of our listeners are real estate professionals, So listen carefully to what Connor says, how he says it, how he makes sense of it all, because he's our audience and the voice, albeit one voice, of the press that speaks about what we do. Next interview, we'll get back to our more standard fare interviewing CEOs. I'm looking forward to interviewing Ken Bernstein, CEO of the retail REIT Acadia Realty Trust. I've been wanting to talk to a CEO in the retail space about the challenges of COVID in a sector so deeply impacted. Look out for the episode with Ken in late July or early August. Also, we'll occasionally be releasing some of these interviews on video as well as podcast. We did release the last episode, my conversation with Andy Cohen from Gensler on a YouTube video. You can link to it through the Leading Voices website or search for it on YouTube where you'll be able to find that episode and a few others where I was the guest in different venues. As always, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, please share the series with a friend. And if you're not subscribed, please subscribe to the series. Rate us on iTunes and please be in touch. You can comment via our LinkedIn page or email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I welcome your comments and suggestions. Now on to the conversation with Connor Doherty. I hope that you enjoy the episode. We're going to talk about your book and we're going to talk about the housing crisis in California. And we're going to talk what I'm particularly interested in. Everyone else on the podcast is in the real estate business one way or the other. So you're, to me, an outsider observing our business and the effect that our business has on the population, our customers, and in our cities. So this is a really interesting conversation to have. Yeah, and one framing that maybe for this podcast we should start with is you say the real estate business. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's such a large statement. 
It is. And I, we can talk about this actually in more depth later, but I try to think about different aspects of the real estate business very distinctly. So for instance, if somebody's a developer trying to build an apartment or homes on a vacant piece of land or a parking lot or old strip mall that's <laughs> gone, to feed, gone to pasture, I think of that as a fundamentally different activity than say investing in a value add renovation deal mm-hmm. where you buy an apartment complex that people live in and try to rehab it either for a higher end clientele or just to rehab it. And I think of those activities and those are just two. And I think of selling homes as fundamentally different than building homes. You know, yep. there's a lot of different things people do to buy, sell, and develop land mm-hmm. or invest in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people are just land banking. I think of them all very differently. And frankly, I think of their usefulness mm-hmm. very differently. So I don't think of it as all one big cohesive real estate industry. I think of it as lots of different people trying to do things with land, mm-hmm. some of them more useful in my humble opinion uh-huh. than others. And it comes across in the book and there is a difference. I totally understand your point and there's difference between, you know, we look at real estate you know, sectors, you know, who does single family, who does apartments, who does retail, who does office. We look at the perspective, is it a developer? Is it an owner manager? Is it an investor? And they all collide and they overlap in the same company in the same role, but down the hall from each other. And the behaviors of each of those differ based upon situations. And certainly, and you pointed out in the book really well, the difference between a value-add investor or a long-term owner or a developer, those are very different jobs. Yes. Anyway, let's get into it. Let's get Uh, into it. And maybe the place to start. So you wrote a book called The Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Golden Gates, yes. It's a wonderful book. I just finished it a couple weeks ago. And... The book talks about really uses California as the place to really describe the housing crisis in America where it may be most acute. So there's a way that people do policy books or books that are about a social topic of some import. Uh And the way that they typically do it is they introduce a problem. uh, They tell you why it's getting worse. They illustrate and expound upon it in some way. And then at the end, almost like tacked on, they have their bullet point list of solutions, Mm -hmm. sometimes literally bullet points and other times kind of a more conclusive section of the book. Mm -hmm. And I guess in my head, I thought about in a way I almost inverted that where I don't think we're searching for solutions for the housing mess. As I say pretty clearly in the book, we need to build more housing. We need to build more affordable housing. And affordable can mean little a affordable or big A affordable, but housing that a large subsection of the populace can afford. Mm -hmm. And we also are going to need, whether it's public housing or subsidized housing or some mechanism to house people who are at the absolute lowest end of the income spectrum, whether they be actually homeless or just people barely holding on. That's what we need. Few people would disagree with that. They might quibble with some details and whatever, 
but you could find close to 100% agreement on some aspect of that plan. And if you broke it up, you could probably find 100% agreement, you know, at some point, right? And yet we find it near impossible to implement this plan. Mm -hmm. LA recently, a couple of years ago, passed a huge multi-billion dollar or $1.2 billion homeless supportive housing bond They've had a really difficult time spending it because nobody, even though people very affirmatively voted for this bond, mm-hmm. comes to building the housing, they don't want it. People in the Bay Area profess to be the most liberal, inclusive thinking people that there are, I say claim to be on purpose. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk to them about how do you actually want to start implementing the policies that are pretty proven to make this place more inclusive, they've come up with some reason why they really are on board with the philosophy of that plan, but not that plan, right? So I don't think we're searching for solutions. I think we're searching for the will to implement the solutions, the will to do anything, honestly. So I think what this book does is through these stories that are kind of interlocked together, you meet people from various sides of the housing mess and at different times, they're fighting with each other and sometimes they're working with each other and uh, you know, just when you think someone's the villain, they turn around and then in the next chapter, they're exactly. the hero. Mm-hmm. I think that what I'm trying to do is sort of say, this is why it's harder than a bullet point list of solutions. Because mm-hmm. when you actually watch these people try to do this and try to implement these policies, they find quite a bit of opposition. So I think that, like I said, the story here is about watching people try to get things done and in some cases failing and in other cases making middling progress mm-hmm. and really sort of trying to ask or to center on that as being the problem rather than the need to know what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote you from the end of your book. So I'm going to mash up like four paragraphs at the end that really got me when I was reading and I hope this is okay. Housing is a subject that attracts extreme emotions and ideologies. It makes sense because land defines our existence and can't be reduced to purely economic terms. We inherently want to share space, but only up to the point we feel it's too crowded. All this makes land schizophrenically capitalist and socialist, creating a vacuum that allows people to see whatever system they want to see. It's complicated stuff, and once you get into the details and peel back the history and ask what source of policies will actually lead to a world that's more stable and equitable, it's hard to walk away with a belief that any sort of rigidity is the answer. So I guess people do know the solutions, but they can't implement them is what you're saying. There's everyone's evil and not good at the same no evil and good at the same time. If you do it in the book, your villains be you know are human and your good guys are evil too. So I think that when you have nothing but potential, you know, an empty parking lot that people have gotten used to and want to build next to them or whatever, mm-hmm. you can only see problems. You're worried you might not like your neighbors. You're worried their building will obscure your view or make traffic more crowded or whatever. You can only see the problems. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to see the benefits. But the one thing that is on the other side of this, though, is once things do get built, often, I guess sometimes people hate them. But often they just learn to live with them. And ultimately, it's the people inside those buildings that they have to learn to live with. And there's all sorts of ugly buildings in my neighborhood that I wish were prettier. But 
I don't know that I'd like there to be nothing there because I many times I like the people who live there. I'll give you an example. I was just thinking about this the other day. I hadn't, honestly, I'd never really thought about this so closely, but I was after thinking about the book and everything. I grew up in partly in San Francisco and partly in Napa Valley. And my parents still live on the same block there. My dad still lives on the same block in Noe Valley, but he's lived there for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And he lives in a classic, lovely old Victorian. Mm -hmm. Next door, directly next door to our house is a pretty, not terribly attractive 1960s apartment complex with garages instead of a lovely bay windows. It's tall, so like our back deck, it's obscured a fair amount of the view of downtown and the bay. We still have a view, but you know. And the side of the building on the property line, A, it has this kind of weird kind of gutter type thing that actually intrudes our backyard. It has like tar with the little rocks on top of it. And a wall of windows looking on our backyard of people who live there, right? Now, I grew up just thinking, oh, you know, sometimes the people look at you when you're playing. Or I kind of got to know the kids living in one of those buildings or, you know, through the windows, you just kind of start talking to each other. Right. And I never knew anything different. Mm -hmm. But if you lived in a Victorian like that today, Mm -hmm. and it had just kind of a butt in your house and they were like more, you know, and then they wanted to get rid of it and build that giant apartment complex with huge parking lot out back and a wall of windows into your yard, Mm -hmm. which previously been relatively private, you'd flip out. But it turns out once that's actually there, like it's not that big of a deal. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is that people convince themselves in the planning phase that whatever comes is going to be the worst possible thing that ever happened. Mm-hmm. But once the thing gets built, they're, they exactly. adjust pretty quickly. So I don't think NIMBYs are really looking for wonderful architecture. I think NIMBYs just don't want change and they don't want change next to them and they don't want their view hurt. And if it's a existing condition, that's really different than something new that will change their environment. But I, I don't think the big argument is, hey, if we put a little more fenestration on this building, it's going to be night. They don't care about that. They just don't want it to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, who knows? But I mean, my whole thing is that, I mean, it's always different with different people. I think that we've created this culture. It's kind of odd if you think about it, because we think of America as being uh, overly concerned with personal freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we certainly have seen through coronavirus that our inability to kind of find a common cause and all wear masks has impeded us. We see that obviously with things like gun violence, uh, you know, we put such a high premium on being able to do whatever you want to do. Right. And sort of to unshackle people from that, usually or often with horrible consequences. But in the case of housing, it's remarkable to me how bipartisan, if you will, our predilection for NIMBYism is, right? Mm-hmm. So you, know, you can go to a suburb of Texas, uh, you know, in Dallas or Highland Park, Dallas or someplace like that, and find people who consider themselves staunch Republicans who believe in free markets and the government shouldn't intrude and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. And you ask them, do you think somebody should be able to build a higher density building on their property? And like the answer is like immediately like no. And 
every kind of local rule you can possibly come up with should prevent that. And then, of course, on the flip side, you see the Bay Area where people claim to want diversity and a large economic spectrum mm-hmm. and the ability for people at the lower end of the spectrum to have a more comfortable, stable life. And yet they do everything they can to prevent that. So NIMBYism, I think one of the things that makes NIMBYism so hard to counter is it's kind of the, the water, right? You know what I mean? It is, it is the predominant form of thinking. And one of the things that really attracted me to the YIMBY group was that they were sort of the hole in the donut, if you will. You know, they were the, it was something I had never seen before. Although I'm sure you're, uh, everyone who listens to your program knows this. NIMBY stands for not in my backyard and sort of refers to people who try to prevent people from building typically higher density projects, but anything near them. They're kind of stereotyped as people who say they want more housing in the city and understand the need for it, but not anywhere near them, hence not in my backyard. The people in my book were people who typically younger millennial-aged professionals in various cities. I focused on this group in San Francisco, but at various junctures you meet EMBs in Seattle and Portland and Austin and Mm -hmm. Boston various other places. There are national Yimby conventions now, which we go to in the book. Julian Castro, the former Secretary of Housing and Development, was supposed to talk, we were supposed to talk together on a panel at the Yimby convention in Portland. Anyway, theirs stands for yes in my backyard. And they have kind of set themselves up as the you know, a new generation saying yes instead of no. So even Houston has a lot more regulation than people think through various measures that aren't technically zoning. Look, if it turns out that wealthy people, regardless of their stated ideology, don't want to live near lower cost, higher density housing. And it turns out that despite their stated ideology, they will find a way to, whether they're liberal or conservative, they will find a way to run counter to that ideology. So I see what you're saying about Texas. They have a lot of sprawl. They have less regulation. So in that sense, they have more than the Bay Area. But it's not true that... Still not in the middle of a single-family neighborhood. And not only that, the people in the single-family neighborhood will raise holy hell if you try. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. Okay, so talk about... And in your book, you profile, but I'm curious your conclusions on what you found when you dove into the Yimby people in the movement. And it was kind of straightforward at the beginning of the book. And by the end of the book, the Yimbies were pretty complicated because I didn't know how they felt around racial equity. I don't know how they felt around gentrification issues. So they started colliding around rent control, gentrification and equity. So talk about that. So how they feel about it is different than how other people feel that they feel, right? You know, so, I mean, not to get too complicated. Okay, so there are... Two forces in most major cities that are most skeptical of developers. The first force is typically suburban, wealthier people who want to, you know, under the guise of, quote, preserving neighborhood character, would like to prevent developers from building anything near them, right? That is one group. The second group are typically lower income people in more urban neighborhoods, though suburbs too, in some cases, that 
are worried about accelerating gentrification mm -hmm. and so want to keep developers out. Now, this is based on the belief. So the, the first fight, which is exemplified by this story I told in Lafayette, which mm -hmm. is a commuter, you know, a suburb of the Bay Area, you know, it's, it's over the hill from Oakland, very close to me right now. And this town has a BART stop in the middle of it but is typically like low density. And somebody wanted to build 315 apartments there on land that is zoned for just that, I should mm -hmm. note. It's actually zoned for quite a bit more. Somebody wanted to build on this land, city's zoning code allowed it, and there was a big fight over it, right? Now, this is a fight that even despite being in California could happen anywhere. That is like an any suburb USA type fight, right? Somebody wants to build a large apartment complex with some mm -hmm. component of affordable housing, people flip out. And in the best cases, uh, the most sympathetic cases, they say, you know, they're worried about some environmental concern. And in the most brazen sort of ugliest cases, they will straight up say, I don't want renters anywhere near me because renters are poor. Mm -hmm. And we, there's even one guy who showed up at a meeting and basically said, I don't want renter kids going to school with my kids. Um, but that it's rare to hear it, but every now and then, you know, you will. So that fight is to some extent fairly comfortable. Even if you were on the other side of it, it's people who tend to be a little bit wealthier. It's people who are very wedded to the low density character of their neighborhood. And so these kind of young liberals clashing with them, even if you don't agree with it, even if you think they're being overly scolding or whatever the best word is of the suburbs, mm -hmm. right? It, you can still understand it. It's a bunch of lefties going out to the suburbs and saying like, you got to open up. It's a very easily understandable story, however you feel about it. Then you go to a place like the Mission District of San Francisco, which has been gentrifying, you know, pretty much my whole life, but fairly rapidly since about 1999, which was the kind of apex of the dot-com boom. Right. And there are people there who believe that new buildings that are obviously geared towards the kind of younger techies because they carry much higher rents are going to more rapidly gentrify the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There was some debate about whether or not that's true. On net, it's pretty clear, crystal clear, that more housing, gentrification follows less housing, not more housing, right? But there is a concern, one that's hard to prove, but also hard to disprove, that if you start to make a neighborhood more desirable and you bring in higher end amenities and higher end buildings, it will accelerate the gentrification because it serves as a signaling device that kind of higher end people are now living in this neighborhood and that there's a belief that that will raise the value of the other housing stock mm -hmm. nearby. Mm -hmm. I'm sympathetic to that belief and I have no way to disprove it because it gets into sort of amorphous questions of desire and whatever. But it's kind of hard to argue that the mission wasn't already gentrifying. There are plenty of, I grew up in Noe Valley, so right next to the mission. Technically, my zip code was Noe, the mission, though nobody would say the block I grew up on was the mission. Right. And a 94110 is my zip code. And there are all sorts of buildings I can point to that were, you know, relatively affordable apartments when I was growing up. I can think of one in particular that are now condos. That's already happening. So anyway, it's that second fight, that gentrification fight. So the YIMBY people will tell you, we are pushing for more housing in these neighborhoods because 
we think the gentrification is going to happen anyway. And if you build higher end housing, if you let the market build higher end housing for people who want that, they will cease buying and raising the rents on lower end housing, which is already happening. There is a debate about whether or not anybody thinks that's really true. I mean, I will say it's not much of a debate amongst economists, but there's a huge political debate about it. That's what makes it more complicated. At the beginning of the book, I think I got more caught up in litigating the debate and thinking like, is this really real? Is this really, you know, uh-huh. does gentrification, like does building lead to gentrification? Like, and then I just stopped caring about it because it kind of struck me that it didn't really matter because people are being sort of pressed in proximity together higher income people, lower income people, mm-hmm. you know, and this is partly as largely a structure of the economy. You know, we have an economy that is sometimes referred to as the barbell economy. And what that means is as one end of the bar is higher end jobs typically are called knowledge jobs and something like tech or finance yep. they pay well. And then there are lower end service jobs, think of like house cleaning or nannies, although nannies make a decent amount of money. And in the middle is the kind of fading middle class. But what's important about that separation uh, beyond the obvious like inequity between them is that they have to live next to each other. You can't like remote clean someone's house. If you are employed in the service sector in the Bay Area, whether it's retail, teaching yoga classes or house cleaning or dog walking or whatever, you have to be within a some reasonable drive or commute of these people that you're basically like waiting on not to be too, it's you essential, know. Right. Yeah. And that is the structure of the economy. Mm-hmm. We'll probably spend the rest of our lives trying to reconcile with that and hopefully making it better. Mm-hmm. But what we know for now is that the housing market does not like even approximate that structure. And so you have this situation where the market the greatest demand is for that lower end kind of housing, right? Or middle to lower end housing. But the supply is more or less being added at the higher end of the housing spectrum, right? Right now, it's very difficult for the market for various reasons to supply the middle income housing. And so if you think about it, actually kind of a broken market. I mean, you talk to developers, their greatest opportunity right now, their largest potential for a market is in this market that they won't serve because they can't they can't profitably. Serve, just call it workforce yeah. housing. But then they're crowding all into this luxury housing segment that is totally oversaturated. If this were a normal functioning market, there would be literally less money to make in higher end housing because it just would be saturated. But because of the cost of land, uh, the cost of construction, and you know the, the time of construction, basically the over-regulation of it, there is this middle part of this, the middle to lower end part of the segment is like not at all being served. I mean, developers don't even pretend to serve. They don't even propose that. Yep. So I guess what I tried to think about is, on the one hand, And this is kind of what I talk about in the book, like on the one hand, what we're missing is all this housing we didn't build 30 years ago, you know, because housing is rarely cheap. I mean, sometimes it is, but typically housing begins for the upper part of the rental segment, not necessarily like super high end, but people who at least will buy or rent a new apartment. And then it kind of filters down. We haven't built anything in the Bay Area since like, you know, we have not built at a regular pace of population since the 70s. 
And so we're missing all this housing we didn't build. So you do have to build some higher end housing right now. When I say higher end, I don't mean like, you know, $20 million penthouse apartments. I'm talking like, you know, $3,000 a month one bedrooms, which sounds like a lot, but a Google engineer can afford that. And it would go down the scale eventually. So you do have to build some of that. I mean, you might as well, since you're building the offices for those people, right? But you also have to figure out a way to build more middle-income housing. And I, I think the answer to that, which I kind of talk about in the book, is a little complicated, but it's almost like we need more and less regulation. It's almost like we need a plan that says sort of here are ways we'll cheapen, we'll, we'll, we'll lower the cost of construction and, you know, in time to build. Time is the biggest factor here. Yeah. I mean, like, so SB 35 is a law I kind of talk about the origin of, but the basic structure of this law in California, which was passed by Scott Wiener, who's now this like national profile over um, housing. He's a state senator in California. Basically the structure of the law is it says like, you have to comply with local regulations on housing, but if you build something that's affordable to middle income, the city council, I don't even think can stop you. It's called ministerial, which means mm -hmm. you don't even need city council approval to build this thing. If you adhere to their regulations on affordable housing inclusionary and other things, then and I think you know, then then you can just build it. And I think that's a smart way to do it because instead of saying, hey, we want you to do all these things inclusionary zoning, build more affordable housing, whatever. And then we're still going to make it impossible for you to build. It inverts that and sort of says, hey, if you do all these things, mm -hmm. it'll be easier. The biggest problem we have is in this middle part of the market. Absolutely true. And it's a part that developers essentially can't build for. So on the market side, I tried to look at you know, what sort of regulation might help that. And then also one thing we haven't even talked about is modular housing. You know, there's this developer I talked to who's spent his whole career and has, you know, done very well for Rick himself. Holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Building housing or, you know, building all sorts of, you know, lofts and all sorts of different things. But he's like, he told me straight up, I just don't think I could even do this business today if I had the cost of construction that there currently is. And so he just got enamored with, he decided he wanted to build his own housing factory mm -hmm. and seems to be doing really well. I mean, he's built several things with the factory now and there's talk about, I think he's added capacity. You know, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I've been there several times and there are homes coming off the line and then I've seen other homes, mm -hmm. I've seen apartment buildings be built after they came off the line. So one way or the other, they're churning them out. I don't have any, you know, intimate knowledge of his financials or whatever. So I guess in a way also, I've always found developers to be inherently conservative in the sense that they are not looking for a technological solution if there's not a problem. Whereas contrast that with tech people who are very often looking for, you know, it's their business, right? Mm -hmm. So they're very often looking for a new way to do something. And so the fact that Rick, a guy who spent his whole career in development, is looking for a new way to do it, he's not a guy who's enamored with trying something a new way if it's unnecessary. In fact, even within the factory, you can see that there are some things that have been automated and other things are like, hell no, you know, like there's no need to do that. So I think that it speaks to the depth of need and the depth of the problem that he's essentially abandoned the way that he's done things his whole career, 
which you know you rarely see people do. Right. It's, you, know, you sometimes see an upstart come in and do something differently. Mm-hmm. You rarely see some guy at 65 years old decide that, oh yeah, you know, everything we were doing was wrong. I mean, obviously it's a little more subtle than that, but you know, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's that's usually, the change agent is usually not the 65 year old who spent his whole career doing things the old way. That's absolutely true remarkable story. It's a great story. You tell it well. Rick will be on the podcast. Let's unpack a couple of the things that you've talked about because there's some different, there's a lot of data here and a lot of different strands. So the moment you're identifying that the middle income called the missing middle by many or whatever the right words are, that the housing market's not serving them. I think the housing market's really not serving anybody because you also point out in the book, and we just know it, it's the low income end of the spectrum where there is subsidy, it's being served, although at a gargantuan cost. Homelessness, another subject we can maybe not even touch on this one. Middle income, how do you deal with it? And then the high end housing you say is being built. But where the middle income people are being housed is largely and served by the industry or largely by the landlords because it's existing housing serving middle income people. And you tell the story in a tough way of what a value-added investor does in going into a neighborhood where higher-income people want to move. And so kind of talk about, it all boils down to me, it's like a supply and demand and an income inequality problem mashing up right at the same time, always. At a really high level, I'm going to go deep into wonkery land here a little bit, but I think it'll be helpful. I think one of the biggest problems in America right now is that we have too much financialization of things, too much what's called spreadsheet capitalism, private equity funds that you know, buy companies and cut their operations to the bone so that they can make a higher profit in year one, two, and three, even though it's going to completely destroy the company. There's even some evidence that the carried interest loophole incentivizes companies to move that some of those deals wouldn't even work if they didn't have the carried interest loophole to, to get them over it, you know, mm-hmm. that their profit margin would be considerably lower, right? And then I think we have not enough productive capitalism. We have not enough new ideas, not enough, you know, even the technologies we do have have been very relegated to software and information. I don't know how much better off we are with Facebook and Twitter. I certainly don't think we're any more productive with them. The financial capitalism is not inherently productive. You know, when you think about what's good in the economy, why economic growth is good, it really kind of boils down to what's called productivity, which is output per hour worked. So all of human history, everything that's gotten better and led to a material increase in our well-being and has in some fashion or form revolved around finding a machine or an animal or or whatever that can do your work faster, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's, that's why, problem. you know, manufactured products allow us to have cars and blenders and all these things at very little cost because they're built on a production line and that helps us accomplish. We are able to have our wages and, you know, general well-being increase faster than mm-hmm. our material needs are. So you've heard all this stuff, you know, the last couple of years or really the last year, oh, socialism and capitalism and whatever. I'm still very critical of some of the most nefarious forces of capitalism, like private equity and all that. But I think that we've lost being happy about 
the things that really do lead to an increase in well-being. You know, things like, you know, again, cars or washing machines or whatever, you know, things that that electricity, you know, people had to invent these things. <laughs> airplanes, airplanes that go very fast, right? You know, and so how does that relate to Rick? In the chapter that you, and you picked up on this, so I'm happy about that because it was intentional. I was not terribly kind to the value add investor. And I don't think that I presented their work as noble and beneficial to society at large. And that's because they basically, and you listen to them talk about their business and how they describe their business. And it's, you know, basically go buy a building, make sure your mezzanine debt is at X rate, figure out how to get tenants out before the interest rate goes up after two months or something, you know, for a bridge loan, renovate it as cheaply as possible with Ikea, everything, put things like nest thermostats in there. Cause even though if they don't really change anything that much, um, they appeal to a certain clientele. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, even I'm not, I'm not saying everyone should, you know, not make a profit or whatever, but it just came off as not inherently productive, especially since all these other people were living there. Those people have a role in the economy and they just got kicked out, right? Now, contrast that with Rick, who is really trying to rip the costs out of the building process so Mm -hmm. that you can actually build a building for less money and build affordable housing for less money, build anything for less money. And hopefully that will make it easier and faster to build housing. Hopefully it'll you know, if you, if you imagine that the construction time is decreased, it leads to less traffic, uh, you know, because obviously construction does disrupt things. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think the message I'm trying to send by presenting those, I didn't state this so plainly in the book because I kind of wanted people to be led to the water and that's it, is that there is a real benefit societally at large for entrepreneurs who go out and try to actually make things cheaper like housing cheaper, right? Go, And so I think that's kind of what I said at the top of the program that I see what people are doing in this real estate world as totally different. different. Let me push on the conclusion about that because it's an interesting one. So you may put Rick at one end of the spectrum, but I might put developers at one end of the spectrum who are being productive. They're creating new housing. So there's Mm -hmm. a, a product being created. There's owners at who have a different business I think value add is kind of a trader. And so the the trading mentality may be where the issue comes up that you're describing. If you ask an economist, they say that the only role of a value add investor, their role to society is what's called price signaling, which is that basically they are telling the market this piece of land and this- It's undervalued. Building is undervalued. And that's a different function, a less inherently- useful function, particularly in a market where everyone knows that housing is too expensive, than someone who's saying, here's how you can build this housing for less money. And by the way, I'm not sitting here trying to say, like, I think Rick is going to become the, you know, that that modular housing is going to take over the world or anything. It might well be that it's, you know, an idea that can't make it. But I I think that that kind of risk-taking is inherently good. But again, you're describing the risk-taking from my standpoint, just to generalize it a little bit more. Really, you're still describing the difference between development as a value creation 
versus the trader thing that might not be value creation. It leaves out the conversation of long-term landlords, which really isn't addressed in your book, so we could leave it alone. But it's another part of the housing crisis because it's the long-term landlords that are effectively housing the working class that you described before. So it's the behaviors of that group that are providing an important service, and how do they provide that service? And that gets into the whole rent control. Yeah, I mean, look, you need some amount of what's called rent seeking. You know, in in economic theory, you want to be able to create a regulatory environment that really encourages people to produce more things and produce them more intelligently and more economically. Mm -hmm. But you want to reduce their incentive to coast on their laurels, right? This is why we don't like monopolies. Monopolies do not have any incentive to make their product that much better. Uh, because if you have 99% market share, the benefit of getting the extra 1% is not nearly, you, there's nothing to really gain, right? right? Because if you have 33% market share, if you can get from 33 to 35, you have something to play for, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is that you need some amount of like, for lack of a better term, rent seeking, because people kind of want to, they want to know that the return's going to be there on the other end. I think we've moved too far in the direction of rent seeking. And when I say rent seeking, I don't mean literal rent, although some of that, but also mm-hmm. financial rent seeking. I mean, to some extent, Google is doing a bit of rent seeking with their, you know, they, they've done a number of copycat clone things where they just copy their competitors, snuff them out. So, you know, those kinds of things, you need some of that because, People want to know that if they put all this upfront investment into anything. Yeah, they want to know there's going to be some kind of flow on the back end, but I think it's too much that. And again, this has been fairly well documented. We've lost our spirit of, it's interesting, you know, we there's all these studies that show that we're actually less entrepreneurial now than we were. I mean, Silicon Valley is the exception that proves the rule, but in other parts of the, the rates at which people start businesses and all these different things is way down. And so... I just thought that there's too many schemes in the economy in my mind and not enough inventing. And so I saw value at as fundamentally a scheme. And I thought that Rick's was fundamentally inventive. Beyond all this economic theory I'm spouting and everything, you could take anyone, a kid, a child, an adult, an 85-year-old person, You could take someone with a high education or a low education. You could take anyone in the world, I think, other than an accountant and describe to them how value-add deals works and walk them through how uh, mezzanine debt works and all all these different things, Mm -hmm. right? And it just wouldn't interest you. And then you could take that same person to Rick's factory and show them how the assembly line works and how they can move a house on an air hockey puck. And they would just be like interested in it. It's just like, beyond all the like economic stuff is better. It's just like cooler. It's just like more fun to be like, oh my God, you're going to build a building like Legos. That's so neat. Uh, versus you sure. know, listening to how a clever financial scheme Well, works. once again, it's financial engineering versus development. And there are two sides of this business. And I'm oversimplifying your point here, but I like Rick as a model for that. But that which the developer does is what gets people largely into real estate and inspires young people and changes our cities. And although the only defense on the other side of that is 
improving properties and upgrading properties, particularly as the world changes, is also really needed to be done. And where I'm left is where we started the conversation with this is complicated. There's no answers. We don't know the answers to do it. And without a significant amount of development in our particular state, we're going to be in trouble. I think we do know the answers, though. I, you know, like the question I'm asking is, how do we get the level of development that's needed to be done in a way that can get supply and demand back in balance? So this is this is a very unsatisfying answer, but I think it's the true answer. Uh-huh. We're seeing a generational shift where the younger people I meet today, when I say younger, I mean like under forty, uh-huh. are really excited about building new cities, about protected bike lanes, about building bridges that could have bike lanes on them. You know, they are fundamentally interested in seeing cities change. And they're interested in, sounds cliche at this point, but saying yes, instead of saying no. And they, partly this might be some generational optimism, but I think it also is just born of necessity. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to live in compact neighborhoods and bike places Mm -hmm. and are currently unable to do so. Mm -hmm. And so they're pushing for the world as they want to see it. And even when I see these Yimby people fight with other kind of more lefty activists, they're, they're still all on the same page. They'll fight over, do we want public housing or, you know, private money? Do we want, you know, mm-hmm. it's, but there's still, there's not this like straight up attitude of no, the way there is amongst somewhat stereotypically the more aging kind of baby boomer cohort that is always fighting with them. I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, I'm in uh, the middle there. So I think that, There is an ethos that people, particularly in California, absorbed in the 70s and 80s. And honestly, as a kid, I kind of absorbed it, which is anything that's new or exemplifies growth is bad. Mm -hmm. That is the ethos certain people absorb. And I think once they absorb it, they can't unabsorb it because it becomes a value, becomes something they've held so tightly that they can't they just can't reevaluate it. And, and I think these younger people are coming in with a completely different set of values. And it's just going to like take time for that set of values to kind of become more, got it. more the rule and less exception. And then policy will flow from that. And let me ask a question. So it's interesting. So growth is bad in the words you just used. Is, I'm not saying it. No, I'm no, saying no, no. I know that. But, but that, that's what we grew up to kind of slow growth. But is density bad? Because they're two different things, but they're the same question, maybe. And maybe the young people now like density. They may or may not like growth, but density is becoming okay in that value system. Is that fair? Yes. I think that density is more appreciated now than it had been, particularly new density. I mean, I don't think anybody ever complained about density in downtown San Francisco, And if somebody, you know, when they develop Soma, for instance, it's not like anybody thought like, oh, let's build single family home. Maybe someone did, but I don't think anybody did. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think adding density, adding like density to neighborhoods that are currently not dense or even intruding on that. I think that's what freaks people out. But you know what I always tell people? That is how we used to build neighborhoods. You know what image I always throw out in a lot of my interviews, which I think you'll appreciate is think about the painted ladies, which we all know, you know, that kind of iconic row of homes along Mm -hmm. Alamo Square in San Francisco that was the opening of the show Full House in the 80s. 
it's on a million postcards. Right. You look at that picture, it's these, I think it's seven, six or seven single family homes that are lovely, colorful homes with the, you know, skyline of San Francisco in the background. But if you actually go there to Alamo Square, which I'm sure you've seen before, there's like a seven story apartment building butting up against the topmost house. Mm -hmm. That's always cropped out of the picture. But if you think about it, that's what neighborhoods look like. I mean, you go to any city, LA, Minneapolis, any city that in America, and you go to the older section of, by older, I just mean the kind of not the full on suburbs. And you will see these little and sometimes fairly substantial apartment buildings mixed into the single family neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And they're old. So when they were building neighborhoods that are now our kind of single family neighborhoods, that's how they built them. Go to the Richmond in San Francisco. You, you couldn't build apartment buildings like that there now, but there's t a ton already there. Even out in the avenues, there's some pretty big buildings out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not, they're not huge, but they're four and five story. And I think that we have to remember this isn't odd. I think that when people talk about building higher density housing in single family neighborhoods, they act like this is some radical shift, but to some extent, it's just back to the future. It's entirely back to the future. So we're going to wrap up soon. So I want to kind of keep pushing on the points. I want to think at the end of this from what you've learned, and then at the end of this on how this problem, so we know the answer, the answer is more housing, but people aren't allowing it. But you think the new generation will allow density in an intelligent way, but that my generation has to get out of the way. I love density. I think it's cool. I mean, if we, I think this, this, this whole debate is probably on the whole good, right? Like if we really just pulled all the safeguards off again, we went back to the world where they literally wanted to fill in the San Francisco Bay with concrete. If you remove every restriction right away, that world will return really quickly. And I think ultimately that's what the kind of older generation is worried about uh, because they've seen it. And I think we should be sympathetic to that view, but we should also be sympathetic to the fact that we have a horrific housing homeless problem and all these people, you know, younger people who are, you know, really having their financial eroded by having to pay too much for housing. I mean, it's not fair to rip them off that way. So I think that we can get back to it slowly. I think one thing I'm kind of like, this is a whole other, not a whole other subject, but like a think about ADUs. California just legalized ADUs in a big way. It seems like they're being built more quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it, that's the end of single family zoning in the whole state. Like meaning almost anyone can now build two units in their house, right? Right. That's a big deal. There's another law that allowed you to split a house and then put an ADU there. So that would be three, right? So maybe over time that stuff will start to happen and people will just, it'll just lightly happen. And that will open up people's minds to, you know, building up slowly but surely. I should add the coronavirus and the aftermath seems to have only reinforced this. You know, it's funny in the weeks, in the first two or three weeks after coronavirus, I was really depressed and worried. Oh, you know, I wrote this book and now it's irrelevant. And it seems like it's only become more relevant. You know, we now know that coronavirus is much worse in the density is not that associated with coronavirus, but that crowding is. So mm -hmm. you can have a low density neighborhood, like places of East Palo Alto, which are relatively low density, but with 10, 12 people per household, 
And that spreads the virus much worse than if you had 500 units per acre, but everyone had their own bedroom, right? You know, so that's one thing. On top of that, the eviction crisis that's pretty much upon us now, you know, I think we've learned that we had this terribly insecure housing system, a terribly inadequate housing system, and that this virus has like shredded through it in a way that tells us, I don't think has altered the conclusions of my book like at all. I mean, even Manhattan had much lower rates of coronavirus than Queens. Obviously, Manhattan is considerably denser because it really seems to be overcrowding, housing insecurity, housing that costs so much that you want to double and triple up just to afford it. <laughs> that seems to be considerably more dangerous than if you just build homes for adequate numbers of people. And so um, overcrowding gets back to income inequality. People can't afford it. And if there's not enough good housing for low-income people then you're going to have overcrowding again, not yeah, density. I mean, we didn't even talk about this, but you know, in the book, there's this whole sequence where you meet this 15 year old girl who comes home one day and finds an $800 rent increase taped to her door, subsequently organizes and to fight this landlord, spoiler, they don't win. But then you meet the family who moves in after them mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. And that family is just a very similarly situated family, almost identical job descriptions, but they've packed, I think, six or seven people into the apartment that used to have four. So yeah. you can sort of see through that narrative, which is backed up by considerable data, how this is going. How it's going. It's a housing shortage. I mean, at the end of the day, you're describing just the economic, the brutal economic realities where you started the book and where we're on the conversation with a big housing shortage. We haven't built anywhere near the growth. We haven't built anywhere near the income generated by young people moving to San Francisco and the tech boom and lower income people who are service workers who can't afford it. All of those dynamics force an obvious situation that is just brutal. And hopefully our industry can get through it. You give some optimism around where public opinion may take this over time. I'm an impatient guy. So the words you use of over time and it will happen and over 50 years, this will get better. The Bay Area can't sustain that kind of timetable. Yeah, from exactly. Well, thanks for having me. This was delightful. Any last words from you? I'll ask two last word questions. One is... Does having written a book versus having reported on something for years cause you to bring the ideas together in a way that unifies them towards conclusions? I'm just wondering the learning experience of book versus column, you know, a, a story every two months on a subject. I think that the book allowed me to think about it in larger, more narrative terms and to, with a newspaper article, you always tend to do less. Right. Taking time to stretch out and really immerse myself in the topic was really helpful. But, you know, I've come to sort of think of my reporting as one giant continuum. Part of it's a book, part of it's newspaper stories, part of it's, you know, and they all feed off each other. And so I'm really proud of the work I've done over the past few years, but ultimately some of it's in the book, some of it's in the, you know, and I think um, particularly with a subject like this, you know, you do the book and you work so hard on it and you think that you should be able to fit everything between the covers, but then 
you realize there's still so much more out there. And when you write about a live topic like this, you're never really done. Uh, I think if I'd written, uh, you know, the definitive biography of someone or some such, right. I would have a much different feeling at the end of the book than when I wrote kind of a primer on the topic of our time, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, I sometimes find myself disappointed that I didn't get more in the book or capture it better or have it more. But really, to some extent, I wrote about kind of act one in what I think is this American saga. So one question I got a lot, which mm-hmm. I think is uh, maybe a good way to end this, is what would be your sequel? And I said to them, you know, so right when I finished writing the book, I read a book for the first time, read a book for fun, because I had spent a year doing nothing but reading all these housing books. And I read Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning, which is by my colleague, Jonathan Mahler. Um, I actually never met him, but I'm certainly familiar with his work. And it's this wonderful book about New York in the year 1977. And yeah, the book's about the Yankees and all these different things, but really it's about the nadir of American cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all American cities were in a really rough place in the 1970s. New York was the, the worst of it. But famously in Seattle, they put up a sign that said, well, the last person to leave Seattle, turn the lights off, which is where that expression comes from. Um, you know, all American cities, even San Francisco, were, were having a tough time in the 70s. And you read about New York with their blackout. There was a blackout and it immediately foments this riot. There's the Son of Sam murders. The city's going broke, right? It's just like everything is chaotic. And you're reading this book and you're thinking to yourself, how can they possibly get through this, right? I mean, how, you know, but of course you're reading this book. I think it came out in 2004 or something like that. And I'm reading it in 2019. And you're reading it and you're thinking to yourself, well, of course, they don't know, but they are like in the the darkest dawn moment. You know, they don't realize like the 80s and Wall Street is about to happen. And then the 90s and then sex in the city. And then they're going to be stuck in the gentrification fights that they're now having. Like they don't realize that the city they think is failing is just about to just like become so popular that it becomes a problem. So I said to someone, you know, I think I'm writing about a similar moment. Similar moment in the sense that we are at the end of something. Whatever began in that moment at the, you know, in in, in Mahler's book, we're at the end of that. And San Francisco, rather than New York, is the absolute apex symbol of that time because it's the center of tech, it's the center of homeless problems. It's the, you know, it is, it is Mm -hmm. absolutely, and I don't know where we're going to go from here, but I know that when someone goes back to write a book about a year like Jonathan Mahler did in 1977. I don't know what we're going to become, but I know that the origins of it will be seen in this time and these issues. It might well be that we end up like Mexico City and we have a horrifically unequal, walled off society that, you know, is is the worst of our nightmares. It might be that this is the wake-up call combined with some things at the national level and, of course, coronavirus that shows us how unstable this currently is. I'm not sure which of those two outcomes we're going to get to, but I do believe that when we look back in 30 or 40 years and ask, what did we become? How did all these changes that were put on the world turn out? Uh I think we will look back and see all the seeds of it in this time in this city. Well said. I still have one more question, but a great observation on that one because it's really true. But if you look at COVID, George Floyd, housing crisis, Donald Trump, 
then you look at what might be coming next, you may be right. And I, and I hope that's the case. So in that context, my last question is always the same, is what's your advice for a young person who might be contemplating a career in real estate? And it still is the real estate industry, not journalism, but maybe you're going to give a challenge to those young people coming into this business. What would that be? My advice to anybody who's young and studying their career is find something that you like doing with the hours of your day. I think that fundamentally I like researching things and I like writing and I don't like only writing and I don't like only researching, right? So I'm in a good place where, and I tend to be a generalist. I'm really guided by my curiosity. And then also I really love, meaning I don't want to have a PhD in something. I want to have a little knowledge of a lot of things. And also, although I kind of a PhD in housing at this point, but also just like have a place where you feel like you fit in and it's fun. You know, as I wrote in the acknowledgements of the book, the newsroom is just a great place for me. I love my people. I just love hanging out with reporters. I love getting a drink with them after work. I, you know, the hardest part of this coronavirus thing is I miss the camaraderie of the newsroom. It's just, it's, you know, people curse a lot that, you know, it's just, it's just a great environment that, you know, it has a certain type of person that I really am affectionate towards. And I think that you, whatever you're doing in life, you kind of want to find a place where you're having fun and you kind of fit in. I mean, that, that sort of sounds contrary to the don't fit in mentality, but I think people do like finding a place where they sort of feel like they're having fun in their hours of their day are actually fun. And when I say the hours of their day, you know, it's sometimes I don't mean it in a, I sometimes mean it in very micro ways, right? Like fundamentally, I like kind of talking to people on the phone and kind of probing them. And there are probably people who might think they like certain aspects of journalism, but wouldn't like that. You know, so when I look at a guy like Rick, he just kind of like likes walking around that factory and figuring out what they're doing and kind of building stuff. Right. And I think that you want to find something that the hour by hour, half hour by half hour experience of it is by and large enjoyable to you. And sometimes you can get so lost in the idea of like a big mission or a big thing mm -hmm. that there's certain people who pick certain professions that seem great, you know, meaning they have lofty topics and, but they don't really just like, like doing it. And I think just like liking doing it day to day is the most important thing. It's funny. I, I think of it as being comfortable in your own skin. And so if you like it day to day through the day, when you find that thing that speaks to who you really are, it's just easy. There's something effortless in the role that you wind up playing, not necessarily the industry. You found it for yourself. I'm lucky I found it for myself. And I was uncomfortable in my skin for the first 15, 20 years of my career. And then all of a sudden it got really comfortable and it blew me away the difference. Yeah. I mean, I still have crazy anxiety about writing and stuff, but yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean. We all anyway. Do. Hey, thank you very much. This was delightful. I look forward to seeing you in person one day at an event or another or in the city, but thank you. This is a great conversation. I appreciate your work. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having me. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, 
Take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.